Today is Palm Sunday. <laughs> We're going to start over here. It's the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week, and it's normally a day of celebration. It's normally a day when we celebrate the, then the entire church is celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was normally a city of about 50,000 people, but because it was the festival of Passover, because it was the feast of unleavened bread, the city would have swelled to about 100,000. It would have doubled in size. Or it could have even been greater than that. Some estimates are even much higher than that. So it was a big time. It was a big celebration. And Jesus' triumphal entry was like a large parade coming in. But when I take a look at this, the town that we have right now and everything that's going around in the world and empty streets, it seems like too big of a juxtaposition for us to have the celebration aspect the parade aspect of Palm Sunday. So I thought today it would be better to have the overarching scope, the overarching focus, really, if you will, of Passion Week, of Holy Week. Because when you understand the scope of Holy Week, it changes your heart. Because the overall scope of Holy Week, of everything that happens, is for God's glory. Everything that happened was and is for God's glory. So today, let us be renewed. Let us be uplifted. Let us be strengthened in our faith when we take a look at God's glory. So we are going to begin with our scripture, John chapter 12, starting with verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So during this time of Holy Week, Jesus didn't stop teaching. Actually, he was teaching ever more. And he was teaching and explaining people who he was and what was to happen. And so there were some Greeks there, some Hellenists, they would say. We would say even proselytes, people who were God-fearing, but not necessarily Jews of the day. And that was because the town had swelled because of the festival of Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there were some Greeks there. And they wanted to talk to Jesus. So they went to Philip. Why Philip? Well, perhaps because he spoke Greek. Don't know exactly what. But so, but so Philip and Andrew went and talked to Jesus. But Jesus didn't answer them. He didn't say, yeah, sure, just have those guys come. He had a very laser-like focus on something different. Because remember, his time was short. And he wanted to really get the message out. So he says to his disciples something very different. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when we hear that phrase, the hour has come, it has a heaviness to it, right? It has some portent to it. 
It means something very important is about to happen. You think about people, men, going into battle. The hour has come to go in that battle. Think of D-Day. Think of D-Day when they were going to go on the beaches of Normandy and they were in the rough seas and choppy seas and all of the soldiers there huddled in the boats and the commander, their, their officer comes and says, men, the hour has come. It means that what has been planned for victory is going to about to happen. It doesn't mean that exact minute, but everything that has been put into place is about to happen. So the hour has come. When Jesus says the hour has come, it means that everything that has been planned, everything that has been put into place for victory has begun. Now, when he says the hour has come, He doesn't say the hour has come for me to suffer, although that is what's going to happen. He doesn't say the hour has come for my death right now, because even though that's going to happen, he still doesn't say that. He says something very different. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's how he begins his pronouncement. That's how he begins his teaching. Now, look, this is, must have puzzled his disciples. It must have puzzled everybody around who could hear him teaching this. But yet he makes a very clear statement that this hour, what is about to begin, is about his glory. And lest there be any mistake about this, in verse 27 and 28 of our reading, it says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So there should be no mistake that when Jesus says the hour is to come, it is about the glory of the Son. Is it about the glory of the Father? And that the voice spoke from heaven, and some people didn't believe that. But Jesus says this, so there is no mistaking that this message is for us, and we must take it in that it is about the glory of God. He says, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus knew all about the glory that was about to happen. But God the Father spoke so that we would pay attention to the glory, so that we would be reassured by the glory of God. You see, this has to give us pause right here. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's got to give us pause, but it should not surprise us one iota. Because when you read the Gospel of John, it is a gospel of glory. John's account isn't simply about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's all about God's glory. If you haven't read the Gospel of John for a while, I would encourage you to read it and take a look at it from that lens about the glory of God. Look, right in the very beginning, John chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory. That's Christ Jesus right there. The raising of Lazarus was a manifestation of the of glory of God in Christ. 
Jesus said that he would be glorified here. His resurrection would show the glory of the Son of God. And finally, I'd like you to earmark, I'd like you to look, if you would, at John chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. So this takes place on the night in which he was betrayed. This is part of the high priestly prayer. One of the last prayers, so to speak, that he, he prays for all of his disciples to hear. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who have, whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a lot of words of glory, glorified, it's full of God's glory here. Read the Gospel of John. It is about the glory of God. So when we say glory, what do we mean by glory? Well, it encompasses a lot of different things. But if you want it in a nutshell, here it is. It is God's majestic beauty, his splendor, his majesty that emanates from his character. So his glory is not separate from his character. It actually comes from his character. And what is his character? His character is pure holiness. It is righteousness. It is justice. It is love. It is grace. It is mercy. All of these things, when you put them all together, that's the glory of God. And the glory of God is found throughout Scripture. From our reading, from our, our, our opening call to worship, Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And his glory he gives to no one. So that the Son has the same glory as the Father means the Son and the Father are one. Not different gods, one God in three persons. So that the Son has the glory, the Father has the glory, and the Holy Spirit has glory as well. So when you take a look at Scripture throughout, you see the glory of God. But now here in chapter 12 and going on through Passion Week, through Good Friday, we're going to see a glory of God in a different light. We are going to see that the focus in chapter 12 going on is how Jesus' crucifixion and death is a work of God's glory. Yes, the cross is a work of God's glory. In his glory through death, so Jesus makes his pronouncement and then he tells a parable. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has this parable, and he begins with truly, truly. Now, if you're part of Joy Family, we've covered this many times. It would be amen, amen. And to say truly, truly really highlights the importance of this. It's a short parable, but Jesus says, this is important. You must pay attention to this one. And see, you and I don't have the context of what everybody who is listening to Jesus they, they would have understood this context in a much greater manner. You have to remember it was the feast of festival of Passover, but it was also the feast of unleavened bread. It's a seven-day harvest festival in which people would bring grain offering to the Lord. And specifically the day after Passover, Sunday, which we know as Easter coming up, that was the feast of first fruits. Now, during this time, they would have been growing barley and what barley would have been harvested. And so they would take a cutting, what they call a sheaf, a cutting of the barley, the first fruits, the best of the best, and they would give it to the priest at the temple. So it was an offering of the best of the best. And by the way, bringing in a sheaf You've heard the song, bringing in the sheaves. That's where that comes from. Bringing in a sheaf. The best of the best before the Lord. So how does this apply to Jesus? Well, you have to understand the implication here is that Jesus is the first fruit. He is the best of the best. He is above everything. And he is being offered unto the Lord. When you take a look at Scripture, you see that he is the firstborn. Above everything, he is the firstborn of creation. By the way, in your sermon notes and on the screen, you're going to see a lot of references. I would encourage you to look them up. Do your own study. But he is the firstborn of creations, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn into the world, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. He is the firstborn among brothers. He is the firstborn among the dead, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Colossians 1.18 says he is the firstborn from the dead so that he might be preeminent above everything else. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, he is the firstborn for the resurrected. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in this little parable that Jesus tells, It's very important to understand the context and what Jesus is saying about himself. I mean, we could actually go on and on about connecting Jesus to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's not just treat it as a little parable, right? But we actually need to almost stand back and take a look at awe, in awe of what Jesus says. And we also have to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying. 
He says, if you have a grain of wheat and you just keep it in the palm of your hand or if you put it on a shelf, it will do nothing. But if it dies, that means if it goes in the earth and that grain of wheat or barley, if it dies there in the earth, then it will produce much more fruit because from that one seed comes many fruit. So he's saying that he has to die to bear fruit. Augustine put it this way, the death of Christ was the death of the most fertile grain of wheat. And Jesus is telling everybody in this little parable that he must die. And he must die in a particular manner. He says that he must die and it must happen on the cross. Verse 32 says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is not referring to his resurrection when he says, and when I am lifted up. That's not what he's talking about here. It is talking about when he is lifted up on the cross. And if you're interested this also is what he said to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He's talking to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I would encourage you to dig deeper because we could do a whole message just on this alone but cross-reference this with Numbers chapter 21, verse 5 through 9. So Jesus is saying that he has to die and that it must be lifted up on a cross. But let's go back to the theme of what we've been talking about, God's glory. How could this ever be about God's glory? How could the cross be about the glory of God? I mean, think about it. This is, a, this is an audacious claim, right? And it's one that it's really hard for us to comprehend what's going on here. I mean, Peter certainly didn't get it. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about it, that Peter said that you should die, suffer and die. Lord, let it not be so. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He says, this has to happen. And it's going to be for his glory. See, the cross, although it looks like a cross of shame to non-believers, is actually a cross of glory. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through chapter 1, starting just verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, is the power of God. You see, the cross is God's power and wisdom and ultimately God's glory. You see, the cross, I wear it all the time. It's not just a piece of jewelry and a lot of people just wear it as a piece of jewelry 
or it's just a piece of decoration on a wall. You know what the cross is? The cross is where God's wrath and grace met all together at the same time. It is the dividing line in history. It is where his wrath and grace were met and his wrath was satisfied and his grace is given out. And all of this is for his glory. We receive benefit from faith in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life. But the cross wasn't about us. The cross was about God and his glory. And that song, were you there? There's that one verse that says, and sometimes I tremble, I tremble. And last night as I was preparing and thinking about this, I just started to tremble, not out of sadness, not out of fear, but at the depth of God's love, grace, mercy, and his glory. That's the cross. And Jesus says, the hour has come for this. The hour has come for the glory of God to be shown. And he says, if you want to follow him, if you want to follow him, you have to do something. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Boy, this is the message we just had from last week, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. If you thought that message last week was simply an outlier, no, it's repeated again and again. And Jesus, during Holy Week, says the same thing to us here. You see, you and I, we are to die to ourselves, to that sinful, prideful nature, to this world, and put our faith in him. And we know that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, because, boy, because by myself, I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to die to this world. But it's through the working and the power of the Holy Spirit that I do repent and that I do die. And when I die, I live. You see, there's a lot of talk, uh, a lot of fear in this world about dying. But when you are in Christ Jesus, you've already died. You died to self already. And you know you have the promise of eternal life, thus death has no sting. Jesus, follow me, and you will have eternal life. You see, following Jesus and being his disciple is a series of death, perpetual dying. I like how one person put it. Discipleship is not a decision, it's not a call to a decision, just decide, no, Discipleship is a call to die. 
And this is why a lot of people don't follow Jesus, because they'd rather not die to self. But Paul did. And his words that he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus says, follow me. And now I want to get to something here that has excited me all week about this particular message. It also makes me tremble in a way and makes me stand fast in my faith. See, it's the promise of Christ Jesus. They go by kind of fast here, but it's promises that have great depth of meaning to it. Verse 26 and then 32. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Listen, what he just said here during Passion Week, during Holy Week, is a direct echo of what he told his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. Because they had a lot of doubt. They had a lot of fear. He said this. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So notice what Jesus is told the disciples during Passion Week is very, very similar. It echoes to what he told his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. See, Jesus says, I am going away. But do you know where I'm going? I'm going to bring you to me. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to bring you to heaven. See, a lot of people, when they die, they say, I just want to go to heaven. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that in either situation. He said, I'm going to bring you to myself. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you to heaven. He says, I'm going to take you to myself. This shifts the whole focus of wanting to go to heaven versus being with Christ Jesus. Do you know what the essence of heaven is? The essence of heaven is the immediate presence of Jesus, of being in his glory. So for all of those who have faith, who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and believe that he died and rose again for your sins, you will be with him in glory. He says, I'm going to gather you in and you will be with me. And being in heaven, and what is heaven? Heaven is with Jesus, and it is glorious. What a promise he gives. And that's available to anyone, whosoever. This is Passion Week. This is Holy Week. It's about the glory of God 
given to us in Christ Jesus. So this week, what I would like you to consider is this. I would like you to marvel at the glory of God made manifest to us in Christ Jesus. Take a moment, marvel, stare at the cross, read the gospel of John. If you read the gospel of John three chapters a day, you will have it done in seven days, all in time for Easter. So marvel at the glory of God. Let us marvel at the glory of the cross. Let us be filled with his promises and rest assured that the victory has been won. And for that, the only thing is to say, amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. 